This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Atomic Days, The Untold Story of the Most Toxic Place in America by Joshua Frank. Once home to the U.S.'s largest plutonium production site, the Hanford Nuclear Reservation in Washington State is laced with 56 million gallons of radioactive waste. The threat of an explosive accident at Hanford is all too real, an event that could be more catastrophic than Chernobyl. In the context of renewed support for atomic power, Joshua Frank criticizes nuclear technology and shines a spotlight on the ravages of Hanford and its threat to communities, workers, and the global environment. As Nick Estes puts it, the Hanford site haunts the future of the Columbia River Basin, its land, people, plants, and animals. It's a nuclear crime scene that once made atomic weaponry. Joshua Frank dissects the historical crime scene, tracing it back to the colonization of this land, while also pointing to the future crimes that may have been unleashed by perpetual radioactive pollution. Atomic Days by Joshua Frank, out now from Haymarket Books, and available at haymarketbooks.org, where U.S. and U.K. readers receive free shipping on orders over $25 and £25, respectively. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In September, mass movements challenging the Islamic Republic broke out after Zina Masa Amini, a young Kurdish-Iranian woman, died in the custody of morality police. Amini was arrested for improperly covering her hair according to the religious strictures imposed upon women by the government. The result is the third in a series of mass movements that have periodically broken out since 2009. Protests that, in some ways, echo those that powered the Islamic Revolution in 1979, the revolution that brought the current regime to power. But this time, instead of chanting, Death to the Shah, protesters are burning their hijabs and chanting, Death to the Dictator, and Women, Life, Freedom. Understanding what's happening in Iran is difficult from the United States, which has engaged in a decades-long project of demonizing the Islamic Republic as an exceptionally evil regime. What that demonization obscures is why the Islamic Republic has become what it is today. Key historical context, like the U.S. and British-orchestrated coup in 1953 that overthrew the nationalist government of Mohammad Mossadegh for daring to nationalize the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which then led to the brutal two-and-a-half-decade U.S.-backed reign of the Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, whose rule was ultimately interrupted, of course, by the Islamic Revolution. This episode is the first in a four-part series on the history of Iran, from 1906 through the present. This episode covers the period from 1906 through 1941, from the constitutional revolution that imposed constitutional limits on the Qajar dynasty, through the coup that brought Reza Khan to power in 1921, who, then, in 1925, 
deposed the Qajars and became Reza Shah, the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty. This episode ends just before 1941, when the longtime imperial powers in Iran, Britain and the Soviet Union, occupied the country, forcing Reza Shah out and replacing him with his son, Mohammad Reza Shah, which is right where we pick up the next episode, episode two. For this special four-part series on Iran, I'm speaking with the brilliant scholars Eskandar Sadiqi Borajerdi and Gulnar Nikpur. Critical, high-level political and geopolitical history is so often absent from our popular understandings of Iran, but there's a lot more missing too. These episodes examine popular political and social movements, and so get behind and also go beyond an exclusive focus on the Shah and U.S. Empire, or the Great Satan versus the Mad Mullahs. What emerges is a richer and more nuanced picture of political and social life in modern Iran, beyond the Shah's regime or U.S. policy vis-a-vis the Islamic Republic. That's what helps us to make sense of the burgeoning and effervescent popular energies contesting and rejecting the Islamic Republic today. Those who focus exclusively on the U.S.-Iran standoff and the high-level diplomacy of the nuclear negotiations would have completely missed this challenge, or even its very possibility— Or, perhaps, they would have seen today's movement wrongly, as simply affirming that the ostensibly liberal U.S. has been right all along, and thereby allied a century of struggles that have brought Iran to the current moment. To provide a little more context for this first episode, because there are a lot of moving pieces, this episode again covers the period from 1906 through 1941, beginning with the Constitutional Revolution that imposed constitutional limits on the Qajar dynasty. The Qajar dynasty, from the Turkic Qajar tribe, ruled Iran from 1789 to 1925. The Qajars were, on the one hand, considered despotic, portrayed in classic Orientalist fashion. In reality, however, the Qajars exercised very little direct control of Persia, ruling an incredibly diverse population only indirectly through feudal notables and tribal chieftains all across the country. While the Qajars were weak, European great powers were becoming extraordinarily strong, and throughout the 19th century, Persia was increasingly subject to the economic and political domination of the British Empire and the absolutist Russian state. That domination, in turn, angered intellectuals, clerics, and merchants, setting the stage for the 1906 Constitutional Revolution. That revolution, which imposed constitutional constraints upon Muzaffar ad-Din Shah Qajar, was followed by a civil war, which constitutionalists won with the backing of a broad force that included a remarkable network of revolutionaries stretching into the Caucasus, including the labor radical and oil boom city of Baku, and into Russia. The constitutionalists then forced the guy who had just become the new Shah not that long ago, Muhammad Ali Shah Qajar, who had been militarily backed by Russia in the Civil War, forced him to abdicate and be replaced by his son, Ahmad Shah Qajar. But while the constitution was reimposed, 
the constitutionalists remained politically divided, and the interrelated problems of internal despotism and foreign domination that had sparked the constitutional revolution remained in place. The Russian military occupation continued, and the central government remained weak. In 1921, Reza Khan, a military officer mounted a coup against the constitutional government with British support. In 1925, he formally deposed the Qajars and named himself Shah. Though he had toppled constitutional government, Reza Shah very much shared the constitutionalists' concerns about the weak Persian state, and he began to embark on a massive project of state-building and modernization that included curbs on clerical authority the construction of a modern bureaucracy, the building up of state security and armed forces, the forced unveiling of women, and a Persianization program that forced the Persian language onto an extremely diverse population and that declared to the world that Persia would thenceforth be known as Iran. This episode ends just before the 1941 British-Soviet occupation of Iran during World War II, which deposed Reza Shah and replaced him with his son, Mohammad Reza Shah, which is where we will start episode two. One other note for context, you'll hear some discussion of Babism. Babism is a heterodox millenarian splinter from Shia Islam that emerged in the mid-19th century to challenge both the Qajar monarchy's despotism and the clerical establishment's domination of religious life. A Babi splinter later became the Baha'i faith. Both Babis and Baha'is became demonized and persecuted in Iran, and remain so today. This is the longest series we've ever posted at The Dig, and I'm extremely proud of it because in these four episodes, we will provide you with an analytically rich discussion of the entirety of modern Iranian history, the very sort of context that you need to understand what's happening in the streets right now, but that's obscured in most media coverage. It's also the sort of deep context of one particular country that really helps illuminate the contours of the world system more generally. And I'll keep this last part of my introduction really brief. We can only do big projects like this because listeners like you support The Dig at patreon.com slash The Dig. Get our weekly newsletter emailed to you. Get books or a tote bag or a mug sent to you by mail. But most of all, just do your part to make this podcast possible by taking a quick moment to contribute at patreon.com slash The Dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash The Dig. One last thing. We've just lost Mike Davis, a -a one-of-a-kind intellect and comrade. I'm posting a link to my 2020 interviews with him in the show notes. Thank you for everything, Mike, and sending my very best to the Davis family. Okay, here's part one of my interview with Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi and Golnar Nikpur. Watch our podcast feed as our next three episodes on the history of modern Iran are released over the coming weeks. Eskandar Sadiqi Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London. He is the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran, associate editor of the journal Politics, and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. Golnar Nikpour is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran. 
A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. She's on the editorial collective for the journal Radical History Review and co-edits Radical Histories of the Middle East. Eskandar Sadegi and Golnar Nikpur, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Dan. One place you could begin the story of modern Iran is with the Constitutional Revolution of 1906, which forced a constitutional government onto the Qajar monarchy, a constitution that would remain in force, however superficially at times, until the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Before we get into the deeper causes and context behind the constitutional revolution, what was it and what sort of political system did it establish in what was still then called Persia? The first thing I'd want to say is that I think it's important to understand that Qajar Persia, even at this time, just after the beginning of the 20th century, was not nearly as urbanized of a place as contemporary Iran is. Qajar Persia was relatively decentralized. The government didn't really have a particularly strong hold over the more provincial parts of its realm. It has this kind of dual thing going, where on the one hand, there's not really any avenue for ordinary Iranians in the sort of Qajar world to have any kind of accountability from the state-level government. But on the other hand, it didn't really have the reach that 20th century uh, Iranian state would after centralization. This was something that was kind of imagined as a problem in the minds of nationalist intellectuals who are also worried about colonial exploitation, colonial carving up of the realm, you know, losing land, losing territory, left and right to the Russians and the British in particular. So the moment of the constitutional revolution represents several different anxieties, right? And it depends on who you are and where you are in Iranian society. But a couple of those big anxieties are, on the one hand, colonial exploitation and loss of territory. And on the other hand, the sort of internal despotism of the Qajar state. That's a refrain that's going to be repeated throughout the 20th century, that there's these kind of dual oppressors. And so when the constitutional revolution happens, and again, there are a lot of different inputs at the very, very basic level. It begins because there's this protest against unfair tariffs uh, and a sugar merchant gets beaten by representatives of the state because of frustration with European merchants having all kinds of benefits accrue to them that or that the Iranian merchants don't have. So there are these basic economic issues that are the cause of the initial protest. But the broader anxieties percolating in different classes of society have to do with the loss of territory and the loss of economic mobility and economic independence to the Europeans in the form of all of these concessions, economic concessions that the Qajar state makes. And on the other hand, this kind of frustration with the way that the Qajar government functions as a, essentially a kind of, how would you put it, Eskander, like a Just to um, sort of hit home what you're saying, I think we have to probably go back a little bit further and we can really go back to the mid-19th century and see the Constitution as a sort of accumulated series of grievances in the sense that the despotism of the Qajar Shahs, obviously we're talking about Nasruddin Shah here, 
and increasing imperial encroachment, um, as you said, are kind of seen as two sides of the same coin. Um, And actually, the role of the the clergy is also important insofar as the the conservative wing of the clergy, or that which is basically working hand in glove with the Qajar monarchy, are seen as very much kind of legitimating, legitimizing Qajar despotism. So as I said, like, and as you were sort of saying, I mean, the Qadra despotism and imperial encroachment and sort of are seen as basically mutually reinforcing. And it's really from the mid 19th century that we see, obviously, the Bobby revolt, which I think is actually super, actually significant, not only because it was kind of a messianic movement, which was rebelling against the despotism of the Qadra monarchy, but it was also very much rebelling against the sort of the, the hold on religion by the upper echelons of the clergy and actually, that movement obviously emerged out of, you know, various um, heterodox um, Shi'i currents, such as Sheikhism coming out of Karbala, but also um, other cities in Iran. Um, obviously, the Bab came out of Shiraz. Um, and actually, the social composition of that, the class composition, is, is itself also quite telling in so far as it's lower ranks of the clergy, it's the artisans, and it's exactly those kind of classes which actually would become very significant in the constitutional revolution. And it was actually a very, very well-known allegation, as you know, by those who sort of defended Qadra absolutism, that those individuals who were sort of at the forefront of the constitution were sort of had um, sort of secret Bobby um, sympathies. This was actually a kind of a very common sort of... Another sort of... I would, another, another sort of... Um, Bobbyism is the precursor to Baha'ism. Exactly, ex- exactly. Which is kind of the... And Baha'ism is, in a sense, the, the quietest version, sort of the, the sort of a quietest, in a sense, depoliticization of obviously the radical challenge with the Bobby movement actually posed. And on the other hand, I mean, another important, I would say, 19th century current is obviously sort of those posed by intellectuals, and particularly I'm thinking of like the itinerant sort of revolutionary um, Jamal al-Din al-Afghani, who was a Shi'i Muslim coming out of Asadabad in Iran, uh, someone who saw, you know, the Indian rebellion of 1857 up close, um, who went to Egypt similarly and had a huge impact uh, in various sort of Islamic reformist currents there, and saw himself as a sort of, you know, he's often seen as and, and depicted as sort of the founder of pan-Islamism, um, but he was very much also, you know, set against or part of his agenda was both challenging the various despotisms within the region, um, and he posed, you know, a very frontal kind of challenge to that of the of the Qajar despotism, but also trying to sort of reconcile, or saying that Islam and the Islamic world, or the Muslim world, had to reconcile with um, sort of the advances of modern science and rationality and all these sorts of things. So very much trying to offer some kind of sort of modernist uh, interpretation of Islam. And all of these currents would then go on to influence, obviously, those who took to and supported um, and advanced the cause of the Constitutional Revolution. Obviously, before the Constitutional Revolution, it was actually a sympathizer of al-Afghani who um, assassinates Nasruddin Shah. So, I mean, I think like in the longer term, I mean, these are sort of these deep challenge to, as we said, sort of Qadra uh, despotism and increasing imperial encroachment. And exactly this goes back to what Golnar was saying, because of the, the sort of the deep, deep kind of structural weaknesses of the Qajar state. And really, it's the lack of any sort of presence in uh, provinces really beyond Tehran and Azerbaijan. I absolutely agree, Eskandar, that Babism and the challenge that it poses is an extraordinarily important part of the story here. And it's one that actually historiographically has been quite vexed because there was a desire on the part of the pro-constitutionalist historiography to minimize on some level the relationship of Babism to the constitutional movement in order to make it seem like not uh, sort of coming out of such a heterodox tradition. Because Baha'i has become incredibly demonized through 
out Iranian history through the present day. Exactly, exactly. So it's taken some historical excavation to kind of think through the the profound challenge that Babism poses to all of the different power structures that are in place here at the time. From, as Eskandar mentioned, the ulama, the clergy, to the shah, to the sort of broader social and political power structures. And that includes with it gender, right? So we have this inc- extraordinarily vivid moment in the uh, early Babi movement when one of the exceptional figures of that movement, a, a woman by the name of uh, Tahara Qurat uh, Ain. I mean, that's the title that she is given. She very famously sort of removes her veil as part of a challenge to the broader patriarchal structures as well. So this is a important starting point for us to think about all of these different challenges to authority that are kind of happening simultaneously and sometimes in concert with each other um, in moments of broad-based mass movement and in other times, in some cases, at opposition to each other, challenging each other for primacy in the in the sphere of what's happening in terms of reform. And just by way of kind of explaining what I mean, I will say that there are also reformists at this moment in the ni- late 19th century whose specific investment becomes law and the rule of law. Scholars like Hadi Enayat, who works on law in Iran, talk about the leak quote what they call the legal fetishism of the of the Qajar era reformer uh, intellectuals like Malcolm Khan who become obsessed with the idea of a sort of legal structure that is rationalized and sort of along the the structural um you know centralized and and constitutionalized essentially a codified codified law as opposed to the kind of pr- uh, process-based law and and uh, regionalist laws that are uh, extant in the Qajar state at the time. This becomes extremely important because it's also in some level part of the colonial critique of Qajar absolutism. Like one of the things that I see in my work, because I work on uh, law, prisons, policing, is that, you know, the British colonial agents who are in Qajar Iran at the uh, Qajar Persia, I should say, in the late 19th century are talking about lawlessness. They're saying this is a totally lawless terrain. And yet at the same time, so it's a space of the absence of law, the absence of structure, but they also call it absolutist, this kind of classic oriental despotism. So there's a strange play where on the one hand, they view the Qajars as having absolute power over life and death for everybody in the realm. And on the other hand, there's totally lawless. You go out into the world and your brigands try to s- steal or things from you or murder you no matter no matter where you are. And the, this the, this is internalized by Qajar era reformists as actually a sort of valid and important critique necessary to centralize and necessary to sort of a kind of legalist vision that also comes out of this moment. And, and that's what I mean by saying that some of these reformist tendencies are in are in some level of tension with each other because they have different inputs, different ideas of how to sort of cure what they see as the the problems of oppression, the twin oppressors of internal despotism, and external imperialism. An important piece of context that, that we keep touching on here is that since the 19th century, Persia had been increasingly encroached upon by imperial powers, namely Britain and Russia. The British seized Herat in present-day Afghanistan. Russia took what is today the country of Azerbaijan, including Baku, leaving the Azeri population split between two countries. And so, though the entirety of Persia was never formally colonized, the British and Russian empires broke off big, important regions 
in the 19th century and also inserted themselves really deeply into domestic politics. Why did Persia find itself so vulnerable to these world powers at that moment? And and how did that experience propel and shape the politics that led up to the constitutional revolution? On the one hand, we definitely see this is this of long-standing alignment of the monarchy, the Qajar monarchy and the clergy um, working hand in hand. Obviously, you know, the monarch has the title of, you know, the shadow of God on earth. The clergy oversee the execution of the Sharia, the Sharia law, and in a sense, sanctify the monarchy's kind of role. Uh, but at the same time, and this is actually very important in the late 19th century, we're seeing an increasing split within the clergy, actually, and a cleavage of some sorts. And also an increased split and cleavage between the clergy and the monarchy. And I think this is actually very important. This is tied because this is and this comes and emerges because exactly this question of imperial encroachment. And it's because um, the monarchy is seen as being increasingly dependent on foreign powers, increasingly because of you know, fiscal financial problems, it finds itself compelled to offer concessions to private to British citizens, at least for the most part. Um, and basically, in a sense, it's seen as selling off uh, huge parts of, sort of Iranian sort of national resources from mines to the tobacco trade. Um, and, and, and in part, this, these concessions were given in order to fund sort of quite lavish trips abroad by the Qajar monarch. So we see this sort of spiralling debt uh, on the part of the Qajar monarchy, increased dependence actually on... Uh, particularly the British, but also obviously Imperial Russia. And this is actually resented massively, both by the clergy, because in a sense it seems opening the gateway to this is, you know, the infidels, as it were, as well as actually it's increasingly resented by mercantile interests. Uh, and it's perceived as very much encroaching on their economic activity. And this obviously is best exemplified in, this, in the famous Talbot concession, whereby Nasruddin Shah gives, you know, the right to, to sell and produce tobacco within uh, Iran to this, to this British citizen by the name of Talbot. Um, and this actually then sparked what is known as the Tobacco Revolt, um, whereby famously one of the most learned clergymen um, in Samaria, actually Iraq, uh, issues or is said to have issued an edict, a fatwa, prohibiting the consumption of tobacco, and the, as the legend goes, you know, it was so powerful that even, you know, the women in the in the harem of Nasruddin Shah stopped actually consuming tobacco. And this actually forces a concession by the monarchy, by Nasruddin Shah, who has to withdraw. But then there's a huge penalty for that, which again, so we see again this, this cycle of kind of indebtedness and dependence on foreign powers, in this case, obviously, um, the British. And this, you know, and this is a testament and is, and is perceived widely, both by the mercantile class by, and the clergy and more broadly within you know, Iranian society, in scare quotes, at this time, as testament to the weakness of, of the monarchy and the fact that, and, and again, many see this as rooted in this question of um, despotism, the, you know, the, the, the Qajar despotism, is how it's actually diagnosed by uh, many sort of more modernist intellectuals as well. But the clergy are very much, uh, at least part of the clergy, also, have a, of, if not the same minded, but they have similar issues with the, with the Qajar monarchy and just see a deep, deep, deep kind of uh, systemic problem which they're sort of moving to, to challenge. And 
you know, this is actually, I guess, it culminates or one of the sort of the key markers of this is the 1907 uh, Anglo-Russian um, agreement where basically Iran is split into two mutual spheres of influence, obviously in the north for Imperial Russia. Uh, and by this time, obviously, the Constitutional Revolution has started. And that's just decided by the by the British and, and Russians that Iran is not a party to, to no, these No, not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, exactly. It's um, it's kind of unilaterally decided, and it's just testament to the, the degree of influence. And again, this has deeper roots. I mean, we could go all the way back to the series of God, major Qajar defeats at the hands of the Russians, you know, tr- culminating in the treaties of Golestan, uh, Tokhran Chai, and things like um, as well. Which, it, it, as a result, Iran lost huge swaths of of territory in the Caucasus and so on. But this sort of encroachment had been ongoing throughout the late nineteenth century into the into the beginning of the twentieth century, and then obviously culminating in this agreement. And the direct um, interference um, of both Britain, you know, the British Empire, and Imperial Russia in the politics of Iran, and trying to, in different ways, actually influence the direction of the constitutional um, revolution. Um, and obviously what is interesting, despite obviously the machinations of the British Empire, is that those who had mobilised largely from the bazaar and obviously sympathetic clergymen and, and other sectors of society, they actually seek what is known as BAST, uh, a kind of refuge in um, the British legation at this time. And so as many as 10,000 uh, Iranians go and actually assemble there in order to protest in favour you know, for um, constitution and basically calling for what they called an edalat khane, like a, a house of justice, um, and um, so the British played this role, in, and sometimes now it's often seen as they played a relatively positive role in this instance. Um, and there were sympathetic figures like E.G. Brown, um, who went on, you know, who was a professor at uh, Cambridge, who sort of wrote very positively and tried to actually um, convince the British in order to have a sort of a more, you could say, progressive, quote unquote, policy vis-a-vis the, the Constitutional Revolution. Whereas, you know, um, Imperial Russia had a very different a very different um, view of that. Um, so we can maybe discuss that if you want and explore that further. Yeah, Golnar, looping back to something you said earlier, why was it that Persia did find itself so vulnerable to world powers like Russia and the UK at, at that moment? Was it because, as as you said earlier, Persia had such a weak centralized state? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I think that that's a big part of it. As I mentioned before, we're talking about a very, you know, we can't think about the Qajar state the way we think about even the 20th and 21st century governments of Iran or the way that we think about the presence of uh, our own government or our own governments, right? For the most part, throughout the Qajar period, at the level of if we're thinking about it from the ground up instead of from the state down, the majority of people live in, in the Qajar realm, like 50% or so, are still sharecropping peasants at this point. Um, there's a fairly big uh, percentage of people living in what would be Qajar Persia are uh, part of tribal groups that have relative autonomy. And so the state itself has an extraordinarily s- sort of weak military, uh, weak centralized structure, and is... Uh, vulnerable to military loss, right? So this the process of kind of carving up Qajar Persia begins uh, in some sense with these milita- major military defeats to the Russians at first and to the British as well. Eskandar mentioned this, the treaties of Golestan and Turkmenchai with um, the Russians at the end of these devastating wars with the Russian Imperial Russia. 
Uh, and then there's also, as Dan, you mentioned, the loss of uh, territory in what's now uh, modern-day Afghanistan with the Treaty of Paris. These are these are treaties that are extraordinarily imbalanced in favor of the British and the Russians. They're not merely. I mean, the, it brings Chinese history to mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a, in some sense. There are century of humiliation. Yeah, there are some important correlates between um, Iranian history and Chinese because you have this long imperial tradition um, that gets sort of reimagined as a national history, and at the same time, this, it, as you say, what's in the Chinese context called a century of humiliation. This this era, uh, a sort of early modern era or early colonial era, where the sort of imperial imaginary is challenged, right, by these devastating territorial losses. So those intellectuals and statesmen and so forth who are really thinking thinking about the broader Iranian context, these are devastating, humiliating losses. There's writing about this from intellectual classes. You know, the, as, as Eskandar said earlier, they're trying to diagnose what they see as a, as not just a problem, but a a crisis. I mean, why is this happening? <laughs> why are we losing? Why are we, you know, if we are this, if, you know, we have this imperial history, why are we finding ourselves humiliated in this way? Um, the Treaty of Turkmenchai is still something that Iranians reference as example par excellence of a ripoff, you know, <laughs> like a, a deal that's so profoundly unfair, right? Now imagine in the U.S., this is hard to imagine in some sense because Americans have such short historical memories, but imagine like you're just in the bazaar in Tehran and somebody's referencing the Treaty of Turkmenchai from 1828 to explain why they think the bazaar merchants are ripping you off today, 200 years later. That's the <laughs> that's the kind of historical memory today too about these, this moment. Um, and the Qajars, there's a lot of debate among Iranians about previous governments and the but there's really no debate about the Qajars. There's a total consensus on their cravenness, on the fact that they then when they're in this position of relative weakness, they use that the sort of what they do have, which is the ability to sell these economic concessions for their own immediate gain. Like, as Eskandar said, the Shah is going like on these expensive trips to Europe and so forth. So there's this fundamental kind of weakness if you're thinking from the point of view of the central state that gets exploited militarily, and then weakness in terms of the the Qajar kings don't have a kind of expansive reformist vision and don't really, there's not very many reformists that they allow into the state. The ones that do kind of reach high levels of state power, Amir Kabir is probably the most famous one in the uh, middle of the 19th century they are not afforded long leashes to make the kinds of transformations that are happening even in nearby, you know, in the Ottoman realm with the Tanzimat. So for those who might know a little bit of broader Middle Eastern history, these are some of the same things that are happening next door, but there is a much more sort of aggressive and concerted effort to to reform the military, to reform education system, to transform the the political structure that exists. And that you just see less of that dynamism from the Qajar kings themselves, who are content to essentially use what they have to bring them, because they're, they're bad at getting taxes because they have so little sort of power over the broader realm, right? So they, they, the concessions is just because they are, to put it in a kind of glib way, they're bad money managers, then they take out, then they, this brings them into this cycle of debt and, and selling off. Iskandar? I think, no, just to make it a bit, uh, just to just add a bit of, tan- make it a bit more tangible as well. I mean, it's probably hard for people to actually envision, as Gona was saying, how to envision actually how the state 
was run or how it actually looked. Um, you know, they weren't really functioning ministries. Basically, the cadres were predominantly dependent on sort of provincial notables. They actually, there was a system called the Toyul system where they actually would sell offices um, and it would basically be for the highest bidder. So this actually, there was no sort of rationalized uh, bureaucracy in this sort of um, Weberian mold, which is, you know, very much the template for kind of like modern state building. It was very much, like I said, offices would be literally bought by powerful notables whose children would then often also take them over. There was sort of very poor sort of forms of um, tax collection. And also, I mean, on the military side, I mean, the the Shah, I mean, the Qadras were largely dependent on tribal levies, in essence, and the kind of the vicissitudes of that. And only really, like in the later 19th century, we see um, the emergence of sort of the Cossack brigades, which really are headed, they're headed by Russian officers. I mean, I think this is actually an important point. They're headed by Russian officers, and they're not really a, a, an army in the sense that we would understand. They were pretty much like the personal retinue bodyguard of the Shah. And they're really, in a sense, protecting him from his subjects. You know, it's, there's none of these sort of features of the, of the quote-unquote modern state that one would envision. And at the same time, you know, they're trying to face down the absolute state in Russia and the British Empire, you know, where you know, the Industrial Revolution came from and is at this time, you know, colonizing the, the globe. And obviously, um, the British interests are clearly the question of India, obviously, the Raj, you know, Iran is sort of in this buffer zone, um, part of this great game. And it's very necessary to ensure that Iran is secure, the Persian Gulf is secure. So, you know, they were in a very, very sort of weak position. And um, and also just to go back to what also Golnar was saying about this kind of imperial imagination, I think actually one thing that's actually important to remember is this is also the beginning where we have archaeologists and the emergence of kind of Orientalism as a discipline going to Iran. And actually, one of the things that's interesting in the time of like Fatah Ali Shah, they're actually communicating their findings and actually obviously connecting the Qajars and the, to the ancient history of, you know, Cyrus the Great. And increasingly, actually, you know, Fatah Ali Shah and others are trying to connect themselves to this in order to legitimize their own kingship as well. Even though they are a Turkic, you know, tribe, they're connecting themselves to this ancient past, this imperial past. And this is very much to try and legitimize their their, their presence and their rule uh, at that time. And actually, there's just an interesting anecdote, which um, Fatah Ali Shah initially, his first, sort of, he had many, many sons, many, many children. Um, like many, many sort children. Of half, <laughs> like a, many, like, many, like a many, thousand. Many, many, <laughs> yes, like a thousand, a thousand wives, I think he had, his report is reported to have had. Um, so the first half of his sons were named like Hassan, Hossein, were all sort of named, sort of Muslim names. And then the sort of the later ones, and this is obviously as Orientalism and sort of all this sort of knowledge of the East is being produced by um, various archaeologists and um, scholars in France and England and Germany and such, um, and sort of connecting them with this past, telling them about this glorious past you had. Then we see them actually taking those up, and the next, the sort of the next series of sons are called Ardeshir and. Uh, you know, all these sort of kind of very um, names from the Shah Nameh, the famous Book of Kings written by um, Ferdowsi. So we see kind of like a change of also um, at, in this period and actually how the Qadros as a, as a sort of, you know, as a monarchical dynasty um, see themselves within the broader sweep of um, Iranian history um, as well. And that's not unconnected to like the emergence of Orientalism and, um, 
and the way in which yeah, it produced knowledge about the quote-unquote East. It's interesting because connecting to that past, the purpose is to legitimate the Qajars, but it seems like not necessarily a great move given that amid this Persian century of humiliation that they really don't compare that well to like the Safavids with leaders like Abbas the Great, where the leader is the lord of the conjunction around whom the whole world revolves. It's hard for them, I imagine, to really sell themselves as still kind of the subjects and protagonists of history rather than its objects. I think that's true. Uh, you, I mean, we we see this with the rise of constitutionalism um, in the twenty in the early twentieth century. Is that people are also thinking through the political form of the state in new ways and thinking about political legitimacy in new ways. But the trends that Eskandari is identifying, I think, nonetheless become incredibly entrenched and important and in fact only flower further in the 20th century right so you don't need the the Qajars maybe lose lose the game of trying to legitimate themselves but you have increasing generations if what is a relatively minor trend in terms of who knows about it in Iran right like the literate kind of reformists or statement statesmen or kind of proto nationalists who are engaging with european Orientalists is still a relatively small number of people, but those numbers kind of increase and into the 20th century as this type of Persian imperial uh, nationalism becomes codified as part of the Pahlavi uh, state vision of itself, and it becomes naturalized as a long-standing history of of sort of. Iranian national belonging, right? If you talk to an Iranian nationalist today who uses this same lineage and legacy and wants to link contemporary Iranianness to ancient kings, to Cyrus and Darius and so forth, they're not talking about the sort of invention of this tradition in the 19th century or the recuperation, at, at best recuperation of a tradition and probably more historically accurately uh, invention of a kind of linked tradition, right? They're not thinking about it that way. There is a total certainty in the nationalist imaginary about the link between what we call Iran today and and this, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years of imperial history. The Shah has in 1971 this huge party uh, to, to celebrate the uh, imperial uh, legacy, 2,500 years of monarchy. Uh, so these trends become all the more visible in the 20th century and into the 21st century. And I think you even see in some of the political movements to today this this desire to excavate and reclaim this this imperial legacy as a way to say that Iran is is different from its its surrounding areas. You'll sometimes even get these kind of very prideful claims about how Iran has never been colonized from Iranian nationalists. Now, that's formally true, but we're here sitting here talking about the Anglo-Russian agreement, the later an attempt uh, in at even further British encroachment in a, what's called Anglo uh, the Anglo-Persian agreement that doesn't quite come to pass. But all of this imperial encroach, uh, European colonial encroachment, uh, militarism, economic exploitation, later American American and British-backed coup, all of this kind of clear colonial interference, and you still have Iranian nationalists kind of claiming an un, unalloyed, continued kind of uh, link to this to uh, imperial grandeur. Uh, so it's absolutely it's absolutely true that the Qajars can't use it to stay in power forever, but it's still, I think, a successful uh, discursive move and successful kind of political 
program that becomes institutionalized under Reza Shah in particular. Returning to the history, the Constitutional Revolution came to an abrupt halt in 1908 when Muhammad Ali Shah had his Cossack troops mount a military coup. And as an aside here, it's just remarkable how many foreigners are used in the military and and other facets of the state during this period. But the result of the coup was a civil war won by the constitutionalists. Why did the coup happen and why did the Shah lose the ensuing civil war? Yeah, I think one thing I'd like to very much emphasize is how extraordinarily unpopular the constitutionalist movement was with the imperial powers, right? So basically, the if the movement begins in 1905 with this uh, practically kind of quotidian moment of state violence against a merchant, very soon it actually emerges into um, essentially a global conflagration in a sense, because the British and the Russians view the movement with great suspicion um, and ev- and get directly involved with the with the reactionary efforts to sort of push back constitutionalist gains right so the reactionary forces that come together against the constitutional movement are very much emboldened and empowered by this colonial kind of backing of their of their cause the internal kind of reactionary forces that are allying with each other, again, are, as uh, we mentioned before, uh, the Qajars themselves and conservative members of the high-ranking uh, ulama of the clergy who come to be exemplified by this figure by the name of uh, uh, Fazlullah Nuri, who soon becomes the first uh, high-ranking cl- cleric to uh, actually be um, assassinated by his political foes for siding with the with the reactionary forces you know trying to put his power with the Qajars and bring back the absolutist government nuri is often understood as as a figure who is threatened by this new form of constitutionalism what's calling itself mashrutiyat or which just means uh, sort of wanting to limit the government it's a kind of limiting the 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 power of the Qajars. and he's imagined as a figure who is instead calling for Mashru'iyat, which means a government by Sharia. But by the end, he's really just calling for the return of Qajar absolutism and sort of return of the conservative traditional power brokers onto the scene. The Russians very much are a part of this process. They, It is their military that occupies Tehran, occupies the north and, and uh, bombs the Ma- uh, Majlis building. The Majlis being the parliament. Yeah, Majlis being the parliament, exactly. So there's all of these anecdotes and stories of the extraordinary violence that the Russians do in Tehran during this occupation, right? So when we go run through history, and I do this for my students too, I try to I try to pause at these moments, these moments of occupation. It's not just enough to say that there's an occupation or that there's Russian military or that there's a bombing of the Majlis building. That's all extraordinary stuff, but it's even at the level of ordinary people, I mean, you have to think about the exceptional disruption that this causes and the exceptional violence that they're experiencing through this fairly brutal uh, process of military occupation and reactionary kind of counter-revolution, right? This is absolutely a counter-revolution. There's a constitutional revolution and then there's this counter-revolution. Now, insofar as there is the ability to push back against that, it really comes from the increasing 
prominence of social democratic forces uh, in the north of Iran. And I, what comes to happen is this critical alliance between social democratic forces in the north, particularly in Azerbaijan, and really- Sorry, in the region of Azerbaijan, but also in the part of Azerbaijan that was taken by Russia around Baku. Yes, that's that's exactly right. So, you know, we also, when I remind my students to try to think, to let themselves dwell in what it would feel like to have your city occupied by colonial military, also try to ask them to think about a moment when borders are much more fluid, right? So if Baku has only just been lost, in a sense, from the kind of structures of Iranian governance to Russia, at the same time, there's a kind of fluidity there um, where people are crossing the border for reasons having to do with labor and where work is. And and there's a lot of cross-pollination between Iranians and um, other sort of folks in the caucus caucuses in Russia, in Baku, as this kind of center of uh, labor movement. And it's through these cross-pollinations that extraordinary social democratic movement emerges uh, in the context. Really, the the champions of the most kind of expansive liberatory vision of the what that the constitutionalists are calling for is is happening in in the in these northern parts of Iran. And that sounds so remarkable because the constitutional revolution is initially very much a liberal and elite one, and yet it's militant defenders after the coup is this this movement is led by this really remarkable network stretching from the region of Azerbaijan to revolutionary Baku, all the way to Russia with the Russian Social Democrats in the wake of the Russian revolution's defeat. It's really something. Yeah, no, no, I just would, I think that's, um, you hit many of the main points and I think it's definitely, you know, accurate to characterize it as a counter-revolution of sorts. One thing I would just say is that Sheikh Fazola Nouri, I mean, is an interesting character insofar as initially he's actually sympathetic to the call for a house of justice. And it's as time passes that um, he becomes increasingly kind of disillusioned and an outright adversary of the movement. And I would say that it's, of course, it's in part that he ends up just wanting to justify Qadra Despotism, and that's what it amounts to. But I would actually say it's more than that as well. I think it, there is, there's a deeper challenge at stake. And I think that he understood actually very well that the divide had come down to this. I mean, should the Sharia be the sole source of legislation and the sole criterion of like legislation, uh, because many actually, this whole notion of mashrute, like limiting the Qadra monarch's power, many clerics supported this, but it would be limited in accordance with the Sharia. This is a key thing. But you had obviously many of these more uh, modernist, more radical forces, socialists, liberals, Armenian um, nationalists, so on and so forth, who had a different vision. And you could say it was one which was actually very much leaning towards um, advocating in favor of um, sort of popular sovereignty and you know, positive law as kind of, you know, which doesn't necessarily find itself, it doesn't necessarily emanate from, from uh, out of the Sharia. So I actually, I think he was also motivated by this, uh, by this idea that once, once this movement had begun, if it had become empowered and had reached its aims, that in a sense, it, it did throw the position of the clergy into a more precarious 
sort of situation. And that's not to say that there weren't significant clergymen who did support the movement and were absolutely crucial to it. I mean, crucial Mushtah heads such as Tabo Taboi, Beh Bahani, and of course, Akhun Khorasani in Iraq. So this is, again, there's another transnational dimension. So it's obviously from Baku all the way through to uh, modern day um, Iraq and places like Najaf and so on, where, um, and he famously actually issued the fatwa um, sort of legitimizing the execution of Fazl Nuri when the constitutional forces were victorious. So, you know, I think there's sort of... The... And to clarify, Mujtahed means means cleric. Yeah, I mean, it's like a learned um, cleric who has a certain authorization in order to issue legal opinions, who can, who has the ability to the power, to exercise ishtahad, as they say, sort of re- jurisprudential reasoning. So I think that is also just something that is actually worth stressing um, and also another point that I would also just stress, and I mean, I think Golnar, you know, hit it to the nail on the head talking about the counter-revolution, particularly of Imperial Russia. I think that was definitely the most forceful, not only in just bombing the Majlis, but the massacre which they oversaw in Tabriz of in, in Iran, Azerbaijan, was only of constitutionalist forces. And we shouldn't actually forget that the Russians were occupying uh, Iran until the Russian Revolution uh, of 1917. So, um, you know, it is absolutely like um, there's lots and lots of things going on. And I think, you know, the, 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 it, it, was, it is very much you could talk a rainbow uh, coalition of sorts in the constitutional revolution. Yeah, from merchants in the bazaar to elements of the clergy to radical socialists, Armenian socialists. I mean, you know, we even have to con- accounts of Armenian um, socialists uh, discussing um, sort of the, the, the route and path to socialism with Karl Kautsky and actually criticizing Kautsky and basically saying Kautsky is overly uh, pessimistic about the prospects of social, for socialism in Iran and actually very much, you know, advocating a platform of, you know, just labor laws, um, eight hour day, uh, you know, uh, decent wages and so on and so forth, education, uh, universal suffrage. I mean, there are some quite radical demands um, coming up. I think it's important to understand with the Constitutional Revolution that it is a very, it's a diverse, it is a diverse coalition, and then different forces see different things in the Constitution, and as the Constitution facilitates facilitating different outcomes. I think that's just an important thing just to stress. Goner? Absolutely. Yeah, there are constitutional revolutions also happening in neighboring places, right? And they look a little different. And I think this is something that's key to understanding the the diversity of the the Iranian constitutional movement. So there's a constitutional movement that happens a couple of years later in uh, the Ottoman Empire, the so-called Young Turk Revolution, which is much more of a sort of officers revolution it's it's not a it's not the broad based as 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 Kander so evocatively called it a rainbow coalition from all sorts of different not only backgrounds in you know merchant classes and the ulama and students and so forth i mean we're talking about really different class backgrounds different ethnicities iran is a wildly diverse place right so different languages people are coming together in ways that are show all these kind of unexpected links and and there's this is a mass movement in a way that the the Ottoman constitutional revolution isn't quite exactly as Iskander said. I mean, the, you can see the contradictions that are going to become even more lively in Iranian politics for the next century, right? Because the great strength of the constitutional movement, its ability to draw from a wide range of people that are rallying against central grievances. Qajar uh, absolutism and colonialism specifically actually have very different visions of of how to sort of 
solve what they've diagnosed as the central problem. And there's a similar dynamic in the 1979 revolution, which is also a mass movement, an extraordinarily large movement against Pahlavi, the Pahlavi government and against Pahlavi authoritarianism. It brings together almost unfathomably a diverse group of people in terms of the protest movement, but then narrows radically uh, in terms of who is then the inheritor of that legacy. Now, in the case of the constitutional revolution, it's true that especially with uh, sort of forces from the North uh, are able to, after the period of the so-called minor tyranny in 1908, 1909, they're able to take back Tehran. But as Eskandar mentioned, the Russians they continue to occupy Iran. So it's a it's a victory, but it's not a full victory, right? The constitutionalists won the civil war, but not really national liberation. Yes, yes. And their ability to sort of, the, the nationalist movement, the fledgling nationalist movement is severely undermined by, by Russian intransigence, in particular at this moment, and by br- continued British uh, colonial investment as well. I mean, this is also the time when the there's an oil concession made, so things are about to change again really rapidly. No, no, I just wanted to kind of give a, a bit of an idea of like the kind of characters in the Constitutional Revolution because it just throws up these really like uh, remarkable individuals. So um, Yeprim Khan, who was sort of the leader of the Armenian um, Dashnak movement, who basically led one of the you know main armed forces that retakes Tehran and basically imposes uh, um, sort of the acceptance of the constitution again, of the constitutional order upon um, on Muhammad Ali Shah. Also, I mean, there's the Hemat Party, which comes out of Baku, which ultimately then gives rise to the Iranian Communist Party, sort of which is a much lesser known party. There's people from Tabriz, so people like Satar Khan, who's like literally like a, he's a national hero. He's like an uncontested like national hero who was a horse dealer. There's Bagher Khan, who was like, you know, came from a bricklayer. There was, you know, these kind of very much, they fit the like, paradigmatic, I think they fit like uh, Hobsbawm's notion of the rebel, the kind of the Robin Hood-esque figure who's sort of robbing from the poor and uh, basically the social conscience really. And obviously, yeah, the Bakhtiari tribesmen are again, uh, absolutely, crucial here. So Saadar Assad, uh, uh, Samson Assad Taneh, these sorts of figures. So it was a very, this, you know, these kind of very important figures who go on to play notable roles in different ways following that victory. Uh, but also they come from, they all have very different kind of backgrounds. This is why I just wanted to kind of stress that. I mean, um, Satar Khan has a kind of a sheikhi kind of, again, a kind of very heterodox uh, religious uh, background, which is worth um, noting. So no, it just throws up these really remarkable kind of figures. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's still very much actually Iranians, you know, they really do absolutely and extremely proud of that legacy um, um, in a way that, you know, there's a lot more ambivalence actually around the Iranian revolution of 1979, as we can maybe discuss a little bit down the line. But that you're absolutely right. You know, when I when I went to Iran, uh, I spent several months in Iran last time I was there doing research for my book. <laughs> several different experiences of going to people's houses, you know, parents or grandparents of friends of friends or people who were told I was told might have a, something to show me or and inevitably I would hear these like stories linking people's families back in ways that were maybe in some cases embellished to the constitutional legacy that, you know, there's, this is an extremely important moment in, in the sort of self-conscious politicization, the historical politicization of many, many Iranians. And it remains a touchstone 
you still see images of Satar Khan or Bagar Khan kind of reappropriated in protests as being like on the side of the protesters, you know, images, people with placards that have those images of these famous constitutional rebels and revolutionaries. And I think that goes to show, again, the the memory of the constitutional revolution and what it stands for, its legacy, even if the, its ability to actually govern, the constitutional government's ability to govern was not didn't come to flower the way that they thought, you know, part of it, the legacy of the movement is the way that it's imagined in the political movements that come after. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by N Plus One magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. One piece that you might like is Charlotte Rosen's Fighting from Inside, out now in the latest issue. Rosen takes a comprehensive and revealing look at the history of prison litigation, surveying the successes and failures of legal challenges to the carceral system, from religious freedom lawsuits by black Muslims to court-mandated prison population reduction measures Rosen recounts the concentrated rollback of prisoners' rights deployed by the state to blunt the weapon prison litigation offered incarcerated people. Rosen writes, quote, As law and order politics ascended nationally, edging out once mainstream support for prisoners and their resistance movements, prison litigation offered a formidable arena for incarcerated people to counter the seemingly inexorable expansion of racialized state repression. Dig listeners take 25% off a yearly print subscription to N Plus One at nplusonemag.com dot com slash the dig enter the dig one word at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail plus full access to 18 years of paywalled essays reviews and fiction for less than three dollars a month that's n p l u s o n e m a g dot com slash the dig enter the dig that's just one word the dig at checkout for that discount. The decade after the Civil War was one of continued instability, domestic political conflict, and of course, as we keep returning to foreign intervention, including after World War I in 1919, a new Anglo-Persian agreement that would have all but formally brought Persia into the British Empire. How did that decade lead up to, in 1921, the government getting overthrown by a soldier named Reza Khan, who would later, as he consolidated power in 1925, become the first Shah of the Pahlavi dynasty and essentially a military monarch? You know, the way that the nationalists at the time and the constitutionalists at the time, um, you know, the writing from this this era, you know, some of our... our the key texts about the constitutional period are being written in the early Reza Shah period. And they talk about this era as one of kind of a morass, a sense of defeatism about the things that are not won by the constitutionalists, uh, the continued Russian occupation. And 
uh, worry about the splintering of Iran. So one of the one of the key nationalist concerns is about losing more territory um, to these forces that they see as kind of pulling the country apart, uh, including the different ways that these that these political movements that come out of the constitutional merge and think constitutional revolution think about their own politics, right? So socialists to the north may be thinking about and uh, experimenting with secessionist movements that are uh, drawing influence from the new, newly established Soviet Union and trying to sort of ally with and join forces on that front. So again, you know, this is after World War One, after the establishment of the Soviet Union. So the global political terrain is also changing. Um, but there are nationalists who are worried about these sort of forces pulling the country apart. Is some piecemeal legal reform that happens uh, in the late Qajar period, right, um, that actually sets the stage for what happens next in the Pahlavi uh, government. So there's this piecemeal new criminal law passed, piecemeal civil laws uh, right in 1910, 1911, 1912, these new organic codes, this effort to, this kind of, let's say, piecemeal effort to centralize the legal structure of the state and to not uh, sort of allow the territorial disintegration of, of Iran, right? This becomes a big part of the project for Reza Shah after his coronation in 1925 is to really firmly centralize the the government and to centralize the legal structure. But I want to just flag a couple of things that happened in the 1910s. There are the very first carceral network, a modern carceral network in the country is built in the 19 19- teens in central Tehran's Tupkhane Square, which had previously been a site of uh, sort of political punishment and and executions and so forth. But there's a small carceral network that's built with the help, again, of European, uh, with the help of European consultants, in this case, Swedish officers uh, who come in to, I mean, there had been earlier efforts to sort of reform Tehran police along European lines in the late, in the late 19th century. There had been a a figure by the name of the Conte Monteforte, uh, Italian-born figure who tries to sort of input, um, reform the Tehran police to have these sort of European uh, policing codes and rules for comportment and dress and so forth. But this sort of continues on in the in the last part of the Qajar, the existence of the Qajar state. And although nationalists of later period of the 1920s and 30s really view this moment of the 1910s as one in which nothing is happening, in which all that's happening is kind of these forces pulling Iran apart, whether they're colonial or whether they're internal um, kind of political movements that arise out of the constitutional revolution. But in fact, there is this um, concerted effort to sort of restructure the legal and eventually carceral apparatus of the state. It's piecemeal. It's incomplete. It doesn't extend over the, the whole of Iran. But you start to see a shift in at least some nationalists thinking away from these earlier calls for a you know, for a majlis or even earlier, the House of Justice, the Edalat Khana, whereas in the in the 1905 moment, Edalat, justice, is really the big kind of clarion call. By the time the Reza Shah emerges on the national stage, I should say Reza Khan emerges on the national stage, there is starting to be the percolating feeling that what Iran needs is a strong centralizing figure, somebody, a Mussolini-like figure who can actually wrestle power away from all of these, yeah. Um, a man on a horse. Yeah, exactly. A man on a horse. Exactly. Someone who can uh, build some trains to make run on time, (laughs) you know. So this is the kind of 
the ether in which in which that movement emerges. Now, Reza Khan himself is an extremely interesting character in the sense that, unlike the Qajar uh, princes who become kings, he's comes from an extremely modest background. In a way, he really shows even the limited success of the sort of military reformist project in Iran because he is trained and he is himself a member of the Cossack Brigade, he sort of plans uh, his uh, coup, he co-plans it, uh, but eventually um, sort of comes to be, without going into too many in-the-weed details about the coup, unless you want us to, um, <laughs> he takes power through a sort of co-led military coup and then eventually sort of consolidates power around himself, in part because of, as I said, this anxiety, this nationalist anxiety about needing a strong centralizing figure. And so we start to see some of those things that seemed like they were on not on on parallel courses in the late 19th century start to fuse whereas in the there's these calls on the one hand for justice and a kind of liberatory vision from the constitutionalists but also calls for the rule of law and a kind of stronger central state and that's starting to sort of move towards the calls for the stronger central state taking the center stage as the major, major worry of these nationalist reformists and intellectuals and eventually statesmen. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great um, sort of overview. Um, I would just say that people often compare um, Reza Shah to um, Ataturk and often make that kind of comparison as, you know, modernizers and, and state builders and and so on, which is, you know, there's, of course, there are, of course, um, parallels and Ataturk's example certainly could be said to have influenced that of... Well, Reza Shah wanted to be compared to Ataturk, right? So he's certainly interested in that model. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a model, that, but I think there's also a crucial distinction insofar as whereas um, Ataturk obviously came to the fore um, through defeating the British, basically, and the attempts to turn... to sort of the, Turkey into effectively a, a rump state and then creating this um, reversal uh, in the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, uh, Reza, Shah, well, Reza Khan initially, um, the sort of the man on horseback, or Reza Maxim as he was sometimes referred to because of his lung, his love of this particular uh, machine gun, he would, it, what, his achievement obviously was state building subsequently, but initially it was really, um, you could say like an internal form of colonization, really. It was um, bringing the Bakhtiaris to heel, the tribe leaders who, who, who basically um, were seen as having independent fiefdoms, Sheikh Hazal in what was known as Arabistan, in Khuzestan now um, as well as well as, you know, major um, uprisings in Gilan. So the Soviet Socialist Republic of Gilan, led by uh, Mirza Kuchai Khan, was again, was something which had to be uh, put to bed. And actually Reza Shah very much um, was aware of this and appealed to the British in terms of uh, the fact that he would be able to protect Iran from, you know, the threat of Bolshevism. Yeah, the Red, the red Menace, so that was also there. There's also the uprising in uh, in Mashhad, so um, Tari uh, Pesian, Colonel Tari Pesian as well. There's also an uprising in the the Kurdish uprising with Simcoe. Yeah, yeah, in Simcoe and so on. So basically, just to hit the point home, is that um, we see him basically quelling internally um, all of these rather sort of you know ongoing, you could say, you know, very vibrant energies of various political hues 
uh, in order to basically bring Iran under under sort of centralized control. And obviously, you know, that's something which is very much um, favored by um, Iranian nationalists. And this is why he is revered. And this is why he is held in such um, high esteem. But as I said, I mean, his his preoccupations were inwardly directed uh, for the most part. And this is not to say that Assad didn't do something similar within the context of Turkey. But I would say that that is an important um, distinction between the two. And just to sort of speak a little bit more to why there was this in a sense, disillusionment with the constitutional project, this lethargy and so on. And I think, again, a lot of it goes back to sort of spiraling debt, indebtedness uh, to the imperial powers. Um, famously, this American uh, by the name of Morgan Schuster is brought in um, as sort of some American financial advisor. To, and he's sort of given this power and authority to oversee the state budget. And this is something which the Russians are absolutely adamantly opposed to. Um, and the British similarly, similarly come on board. I mean, he was really um, also trying to basically fund uh, the gendarmerie to, be, to the end of tax collection. So there was this sort of just serial problem of actually having little authority beyond Tehran, the inability to, uh, to collect taxes. And therefore, you know, the Majlis, you know, had limited real authority and power um, at its disposal. It had all of these sort of lofty aspirations and there are these incredible debates around secularism and legal equality and all these sorts of things going on at this time. But the question was, you know, in practice, what were they doing? And this obviously then creates this. And obviously at the same time, Russia is, you know, very adamant that this is an, a, you know, a no-go. This is a red line. And ultimately Schuster is sent packing and he wrote, you know, he wrote this very famous book called The Strangling of Persia, which itself is a quite remarkable document in many ways. But anyway, I mean, he's kicked out and then again, just this disillusionment sets in when someone like Reza Khan emerges, you know, this strong figure able to, uh, in a sense, you know, in the, in, in the name of the forces of order, there were many people, even who were former constitutionalists, so people can, you can think of uh, Arifat Ghazvini, this famous constitutionalist poet, I mean, who are now, you know, very much talking um, about him as a saviour of the country, and yeah, I mean, Golan mentioned Mussolini in comparisons. Yeah, I mean, um, there were at the time. So, you know, there, there was this sort of global conversation and awareness of what was going on um, elsewhere, which is important to note. It's the Christ. It's in part th- these movements are arising all over the world in the, Iran's context is particular in the sense of the constitutional movement and so forth. But if we if we sort of denationalize our thinking, these strongman movements are all emerging sort of, sort of simultaneously around the world after the crisis of World War One. You know, the even though World War One, we think of it, I think at least in the U.S. in many ways, we think of it as a kind of European war, right? Because of host of reasons, including disease and famine in the Ottoman Empire and in Qajar Persia, 10, 15, 20% of the population, depending on different estimates, is lost, right? So this is an, a moment of extraordinary crisis, even at a social level, beyond just the kind of state level thinking that we're, I think, accustomed to as as political historians and intellectual historians. You know, this is a moment of of pandemic, of war. So th- this cri- coming out of those crises, um, and I think we, you know, I think we can kind of think it through from our contemporary vision of seeing the uh, rising authoritarian nationalisms all over the world, right? Crises produce both suffering and the kind of the conf- the extraordinary suffering and also the kind of contradictions that that also allow for the emergence of 
of these right-wing movements. Uh, I think Reza Shah has to be understood in that broader global context, even though there are important distinctions and the specific sort of way in which he works with the British at this point is, is, is I think, as Eskandar mentioned, really, really crucial and distinguishes him from some of the other people he's compared to. Reza Shah's state-building project focused on building a powerful bureaucracy and a powerful military, and it was accompanied by a polity-building project, this intense program of Persianization that forced a multiplicity of ethno-national and linguistic groups and tribes to learn and speak Persian, forcibly creating this national language in a sense that had really never existed before. He also renames the country Iran, a reference, I think, to it supposedly being the birthplace of the ancient Aryans. What sort of nation-state did these two interrelated projects make? Yeah, absolutely. So we talked about some of these trends already, right? It's really important to understand that they're not being invented whole cloth by Reza Shah, the newly coronated Reza Shah. So that's why I I mentioned even some of the the efforts at uh, legal reform in the 1910s, which is typically imagined in nationalist discourses as this moment of kind of decay and lethargy. There's, however piecemeal these efforts to bring a kind of centralized code um, into the Iranian state from an earlier period. But Reza Shah really just sort of sort of puts that project on steroids and makes it happen in a way that hadn't been seen before. So at the level of the institutions, yeah, there is this extraordinary expansion of the state. It's one that I want to really flag as being one that carries on through past the 1979 moment as well, where starting in this period, we start to see about a, a hundred years of just exponential state building in the Iranian context. And that comes with it, all of the, you know, the sort of dark side of what we think about those things, uh, rad- uh, rapidly expanding police force, rapidly expanding surveillance capacities, rapidly expansing, expansive Uh, expanding carceral network. So in the late 1920s, um, Reza Shah appoints a really interesting figure by the name of Ali Akbar. And so he appoints Davar to centralize the judiciary. Davar sort of lets go everybody who's who's there. He wants to wrestle power away from the remaining Sharia courts and, and really centralize Iran's legal apparatus. Does this over a course of in some in some ways, he does it over a course of days, right? Like there's this wholesale firing and re, re, restructuring that happens in a few days. But in fact, it actually takes several years to bring on the personnel who are sort of educated along essentially modern European legal lines to be these new look jurists. Then again, this process in some ways reverses in 1979 when the courts are put into the hands of clerics uh, as, you know, and the sort of modern bureaucrats are booted and modern legalists are booted from the judiciary. But the process of expanding the state is, there's a kind of continuity there. Um, I want to flag that now because that 1979 moment, it's, it's you know, endlessly fascinating to we historians of Iran to think about the, both the continuities and the radical breaks that happen at that moment. But the expansion of the state is one that continues apace, right? Like just even though at 79, there is this call for debureaucratizing uh, the government, it only sort of expands further. So this is the moment of this kind of initial bureau- bureaucratizing of the state. Whereas in even in the by the time Davar is is placed in the head of the judiciary, 
There's only a few hundred people held in the carceral network that had been built, built 10, 15 years prior in Tehran. This is attested in the police journals of the time. There's only a few hundred people being held in those initial modern prisons, which are very generically called prison number one and prison number two. But within just a few years, there would be a radical, a sort of exponential leap in the number of both police officers and uh, people that they're incarcerating. You have to kind of think about it from the point of view, again, of ordinary people. All of a sudden, there's all these new laws on the books, um, policing their movement, policing things that had not previously been imagined as part of the sort of realm of the state and of 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 how those legal structures would work. There's all these there's all these incredible archives where these modernist intellectuals and and sort of centralizing legalists talk about how one of the hardest things about their jobs is dealing with a populace who simply doesn't seem to understand what's good, like that it's good to have modern police. They feel extremely agitated by being, um, <laughs> having to deal with, with these new police forces. And, and the, you have these central, you know, kind of centralist legalists talking about how they're like not properly modern yet, but they'll get there. I don't want to make it sound like this all happens overnight. There's this long kind of process, even in terms of building new prisons in the late 1920s, early 30s, there's this plan to build like tens of new prisons and only a few of those are initially built. It takes decades to build more of them and some of the plans never come to pass. But still, this is the moment where those structures, those institutions that Iranians are continuing to live with today from different sort of ministries, you know, banking structures, even things like post offices and so forth. This is when it's it's sort of being built out, the institutions of the modern state. Just for some clarity on the link to the earlier period, the architect who builds a lot of these, you know, sort of uh, who designs a lot of these new modern buildings, including the post office, major bank in Tehran, and also uh, Qasr prison, which is the kind of big prison in, in Iran until 2008. He had, it's a Tbilisi born figure by the name of Nikolai Markov, and he was known to Reza. Shah because they had served together in the Cossack Brigade. And Markov's initial work in the Cossack Brigade had been he's like, uh, sort of attested as this extraordinarily passionate anti-socialist, anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik figure who both in the 1905 moment and later is is, is sort of crucial in the in uh, being a kind of military leader against uh, in, in both in Russia and in, in Persia. So he serves with uh, Reza Shah and the Cossack Brigade and then later is hired by Reza Shah to build all of these buildings, uh, including the prison. So you start to see all that there are these kind of material links between these earlier efforts to centralize the state. Now, part of that state centralization project and institutionalization project is is actually these new institutions um, that are in, invested with the power to uh, transform the cultural makeup, to centralize, to sort of nationalize Iran. So he, you know, Reza Shah makes the announcement that he wants the country, which had until then in international context been called Persia, to be known as Iran. Now, of course, it's called Iran in Persian among Iranians before this moment. Um, you know, Persia is not a word that Iranians use uh, in any meaningful meaningful way. But he says he wants the country to be called Iran. And I think this happens in 1935. Askandar, do you remember the exact year? Yeah, I think it's 35. I think 35, yeah. Yeah, so he, and this is part of trying to present a new um, national image to the rest of the world, to project 
uh, both strength and stability and modernity uh, outwards and linking Iran to the imperial legacy that we had talked about, the kind of what's percolating in the 19th century as a, as a something that Iranian intellectuals and proto-nationalists are drawing from Orientalist discourses gets more or less codified as, as the state project in the early Pahlavi period, this kind of uh, imperial nationalism, this imperial nationalist imaginary of, of Pahlavi Iran, even in taking on the name Pahlavi, uh, which is, of course, not Reza Khan's actual last name, but is um, meant to sort of evoke the strength of imperial glory. And it's also part of him making last names a thing. Yes, yes. Like family names. Yes. So there's this is a moment where there's this kind of, you know, what classically uh, theorists of nationalism have called the Janus-faced aspect of nationalism, which is both looking back to some glorious past, in this case, uh, Iran's imperial uh, history, and also looking forward to this kind of this kind of modernist vision of a new polity. This comes with it, perhaps the most visible of the cultural transformations he attempts to, uh, Reza Shah attempts to uh, sort of produce is in these big sartorial changes that he um, legalizes, um, including um, forced unveiling of women. So this is, for me, one of the extraordinarily important uh, historical touchstones for the contemporary debates on uh, hijab laws, right, is that you actually have this longer legacy of Iranian authoritarian uh, government figures, you know, from Reza Shah to the to Khomeini to the Islamic Republic uh, leaders today, uh, to Khomeini and, and, and such, you have these, uh, these patriarchal authoritarian state figures making sartorial demands that are particularly onerous on women. At this moment, it's forced unveiling. There's also uh, laws commanding men to wear sort of Western-style suits and hats, what are called the Pahlavi hats. Uh, this is until he switches to the fedora. Yeah. So that, <laughs> the the images from this era are really like you see it because you see the efforts, especially with school children, to make them speak the same language, wear the same outfit. This kind of enforced nationalization, uh, the violent sedentarization of the tribes, and also the violent kind of just sort of wrestling power away from tribal leaders. This is a violent process. I mean, people die. It's not just a matter of them being kind of there's corporal punishment in schools when kids aren't speaking the right language. But the, the process itself is a devastating one across Iran in many, many ways. In the nationalist historiography, it's it's kind of it's it, the way that it's talked about is, well, you know, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And the omelet that Reza Shah is trying to make at this time is the omelet of a stable Iran that's not losing territory. And again, to reaffirm what Eskandar said, there's a secessionist movement in the north, the Jangyali movement, and there's emerging kind of Kurdish movement. There's Bakhtiari tribe. There's all of these potentially secessionist movements that nationalists point to as well. You know, Reza Shah might have been a, had a heavy hand, but without him, this is the story from their point of view, without him, there would be no Iran on the map today. That's the stakes. It's an existential kind of set of concerns that we would have lost Iran forever. There, it might, Iran might have become balkanized right there on the spot. And who knows then what the context would look like now, war, violence, you know, it's, it's, so this is an extremely apocalyptic kind of narrative in, in one strain of the nationalist thought that Reza Shah is the singular figure that stops this from happening. This is in part because of his own vision. Um, you know, he, 
and again, these two things are linked because they're institutionalized, right? So you have something like this this new government uh, effort to make a purer Persian language through something that's called the Farangistan, this language institute that tries to change Arabic loan words into older Persian words. So even, again, in my work, which is about prisons, the word that we we use naturally, like that when I'm talking about prisons in Persian, I use the word zendan. But even in the constitutional period, the word zendan is not the the, the main word that's used for the, the prison, or in the late Qajar period, it's not the word that's used. We're talking about you know, haps or basically the words that are used about incarceration and prisons are drawn from the Arabic. So even in these really basic ways, that's just one example, but there's literally thousands of examples like this. Again, this is something we see again in the Islamic Republic period when there's this effort to sort of take English or French words out of circulation and, and bring back kind of what's pitched as a kind of more authentic language. But you see in both of these moments, this effort to Yes, centralize, nationalize, and homogenize what is actually an extraordinarily diverse um, place with, I mean, even to this day, after a hundred some odd years of uh, essentially forced Persianization, only, uh, the numbers are not perfect on this, but 50%, 55% of the country speaks Persian at home at their as their first language. So without that process, that number would have been much lower. And even royalty wasn't necessarily speaking Persian at home. No, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I forget which one, which figure was speaking French or something well, <laughs> to I mean, their wife. Mohammad Reza Shah, <laughs> to the, his dying day, um, sort of avowed being more comfortable in, in French than any other language. But in earlier times, you know, the Qajars <laughs> are a sort of Turkic tribe. They're not a sort of original. You know, that's the thing about all of these kings claiming this long lineage of uninterrupted Persian kingship is that we're actually talking about like a lot of people from different um, sort of ethnic, political, uh, conceptual spheres that, that, that have political power in the area over the course of several hundred years. Um, so you have to flatten a lot of those distinctions in order to get to a narrative that gives you continuity. It also misses just hundreds of years of the Islamic caliphate, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. I mean, the story of uninterrupted imperial uh, Persian kingship would have made no sense to the people living in that in the in what we now call Iran for many many hundreds of years. It would have just like not. They would have been like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. That was part one of my interview with Eskandar Sadigi Borajerdi and Gulnar Nikpor. Eskandar Siddiqui Borajerdi is a professor of contemporary politics and modern history of the Middle East at Goldsmiths College, University of London, and the author of Revolution and Its Discontents, Political Thought and Reform in Iran. Golnar Nikpor is a professor of history at Dartmouth College with an interest in histories of law, incarceration, and rights in modern Iran, and is currently finishing her first book project, A History of Iranian Prisons and Carcerality in a Global Context. Stay tuned as our next three episodes on the history of modern Iran are released over the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, anybody who knows anything of history knows that great social changes are impossible without the feminine ferment. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. 
The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Thea Rio Francos and Ben Maybe. A really big thanks to Nushin Samimi and Sarah Hassani for helping out so much preparing this series, and to Eskandar and Golnar too. Putting this together was a truly collaborative operation. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling friends in real life about the podcast. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. Thank you.